Hello, my name is Andy Morgan, and welcome to another episode of the RipBody.com podcast. I have no problem just savagely attacking bad ideas, but I think a lot of times people kind of dig themselves into a hole and don't do their side or their agenda any favors when they treat people they disagree with poorly. People are just more likely to change their minds if you treat them and the ideas they espouse with respect. Uh, That doesn't mean you have to agree with what they say. That doesn't mean that it can't be a scenario where you're 100% right and they're 100% wrong and their ideas have no merit and you don't have to meet them in the middle. Like you don't have to compromise. But you still need to treat generally their ideas and at least them with respect. This is the second of a multi-part interview with my friend Greg Knuckles of StrongerByScience.com. In this, Greg pulls no punches, answering reader questions. We cover protein intake recommendations. Are smaller people eating too little when they set their protein intake based on body weight? How Japanese bench pressers tweak their grip to gain an advantage? And as you heard, uh, how to treat people with opposing points of view. Now, if you wish to skip past the funnies and straight to the first question covering why Greg no longer bothers with YouTube, jump to the eight minute mark. I hope you enjoy this interview with Greg Knuckles. Does pineapple go on pizza? Yes. Who? I don't, I don't understand why that's even contentious. Pineapple is delicious. Pizza is delicious. They go together. I tell you, man. I tell you, they do have some interesting pizza toppings here in... What is, uh, what is the weirdest pizza topping you've seen in Japan? Okay, so, like, it was the worst pizza. It was like chewing glass. It's these little shrimp, um, mm-hmm. st- whole, dried... Not peeled? Not peeled. All over the pizza. With no tomato sauce. I feel like that's not even a pizza at that point. That's just a up flatbread (laughs) i sympathize with you so strongly right now like that's no human should have to go through that thank you greg this is why and this rolls into the next point which was from the wonderful wonderful ben carpenter he says where does he rank in your favorite people ever chart well greg uh yesterday as i had ben on uh for an interview um, he said, well, how can I compare with Greg? Like, obviously, you're more of a fan of him. And I said, well, Greg is definitely in my top three of my favorite people in the world. <laughs> and so, so it's not really fair to yourself to even bring that up. And, and then I realized that, no, 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 I forgot my mom. I forgot my dad in there. I forgot Cookie the Alpaca. I forgot your dog, Oswald. I forgot Hilo, Soul's dog. I mean... Uh, so I apologize. It's, it's because you, you can sympathize with my plight of being stuck um, with uh, this one poor pizza option and clearly not the ability to go and walk in any other of the 100,000 restaurants that they have in Tokyo. Thank you. Yeah, that's true. What are we doing? Uh, beard care. How do you... Um, yeah, beard maintenance, says Russell Taylor. And also Brad Deere followed up with, what is the secret to a beautiful beard? I mean, secret to a beautiful beard is mostly just picking the right parents. Uh, my my dear father has the thickest beard of any human on the planet, I'm pretty sure. 
Um, like he, he legit has to shave under his ear because his beard connects to his hair, like all around the side of his neck. That's a lot of it in terms of beard care. I don't do any, um, like when it gets long enough, I'll shampoo it every other day. And, uh, that's about it, man. So when you came across a bear in the woods with your wife and a sister, uh, last year, are you sure it was a bear or could it have been your dad going for a naked ramble? Uh, so my father is not a very large man. I think, I think I'd be able to tell the difference, but that is, uh, that is a good point. All right, let's go to some more serious questions. Please divulge your daily blueberry intake. (laughs) Was that Mike T. Nelson? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I knew that had to be Mike. Um, so generally, generally around a pint. Um, so true story, when we were in Malaysia and Singapore, we ate like kings for two weeks straight. Uh, the only food that I was craving near the end of that trip that I actually like went to a store to buy so I could get some of was blueberries. I do love blueberries. They're fantastic. Um, there's some research showing that they're like particularly good for you as well, even like among the fruit kingdom. Um, like some of the phytonutrients in them are good for brain health and memory and sugar metabolism and a bunch of other stuff. But mostly I just like them because they're delicious. Blackberries are a very close second. Blueberries and blackberries are just exceptional. So is that the secret to your intelligence then? Um, pint of blueberries a day? I don't think so. That's that's uh, that's mostly picking the right parents as well. Uh, IQ by adulthood has a heritability of about 0.8 to 0.85. Um, I did still love blueberries as a kid, though. So one time uh, there there was like this blueberry stand that would set up near our house during the summer. And <laughs> OK, never mind. This is this is a kind of disgusting story, but I've already started. So yeah. the train has left the station. Um, and we would just buy like a gallon of blueberries at a time. And one day, like there was not much other food in the house. And I was just like reading a book or something and kind of like mindlessly snacking on blueberries. And I ate the whole gallon of blueberries in one sitting. And later that day I was getting like kind of intense stomach pain because like blueberries have a reasonable amount of fiber, like with a normal serving. A gallon of them has a pretty ridiculous amount of fiber. So I was getting these belly rumblings. I went to the toilet, just destroyed it. But the thing is, it still smelled like blueberries. It was ridiculous. Like, I think blueberries were the only thing in my digestive system at that point. Um, Anyway, so I guess now blueberries are suddenly less appetizing to anyone listening to this. But yeah, blueberries are great. Uh, But yes, to answer the question, I've had a pint of them today. I've got a question. Is there anything that you do not know? Because it does seem that you cannot be stumped, which is why I call you the singularity. The Greg train (laughs) is coming. Jump aboard or get crushed, people. There are a lot of things I don't know, man. I think my best skill is just steering any conversation into a direction of things that I actually do know stuff about. Just so people uh, never find out my stunning ignorance about most things. 
Why did you stop uploading content to YouTube? I thought this was a good one and I liked your response here. Um, if you don't want to kick the barrel of bees, then we can skip this. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, I'm a generally jovial person with a sunny disposition and I like affiliating with, with similarly wired people. And uh, the fitness industry itself is a relatively cancerous industry. And YouTube fitness is more cancerous by at least four orders of magnitude than the general fitness industry. There, there are some YouTubers who I really, really like. Like I've worked with Omar Isaf before. Love Omar. Like he's a fantastic dude. Talk to Alan Thrall some. Alan's a really good dude. Uh, like there, there are good folks on YouTube, but like most of the YouTube fitness community is just terrible. Um, and I, and I think a lot of that is just because it is like a more visual medium. Um, so there's much more of like the, Oh, this person's big and strong. Therefore they knew they know everything. Um, and also like <laughs> the average YouTube viewer, <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't apply to all YouTube fitness viewers by any means. So if, if that is you and you're listening to this, I'm sure you're one of the good ones, but most of them are just worse than the average person who reads things. And I think a fair amount of it is age. Um, like the average reader of my website is early to mid thirties. Um, even with that in mind and the fact that I didn't really do like clickbait content is more just like boring sciencey stuff for YouTube. My average YouTube viewer is like 21, 22. Uh, and the average YouTube viewer across the industry is like 17 or 18. And so like, I don't know, it's just like young people who don't have very much perspective on things. And I just, I don't know, like I I'm to a point in my career where I, where I do have the luxury of like, not just having to grow my audience at all costs. Um, so I can pretty aggressively like choose, uh, who I spend my time online with and who I associate with. And I just like the YouTube fitness community is just not doing it for me. Like, I just don't like it. That's, that's, uh, that's, fair most enough. Of it. that's fair enough. That's how you yeah. create a happy working life, which is important because yeah. that way you get up each morning pumped instead of get up each morning and be like, yeah, shit. Oh, uh, Jeff Nippert as well. Jeff Nippert is a really, really good dude on YouTube. He's come on like really strong just in the past six months to a year. Jeff's a really cool dude as well. Like I, I don't, I don't want to make it seem that I hate everyone and everything associated with YouTube. You absolutely like haven't. Don't worry. Well. You didn't. Okay. You didn't. No, no, no. Don't worry about that. And yeah, Jeff, I messaged him and I, I saw one of his videos and I asked him, how long did it take you to edit that? And he said something like 17 hours. I thought he said 37, oh. but that can't be right. So he's thinking he's at 17 hours. And I was just like, is he saying that just to put me off from entering even the space? Because I can't even fathom that. Like, what? But it was, yeah, right. it was well done. He's just trying to get rid of the competition preemptively. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I'd be competition though. Right. So stay off my medium, Andy. Get away. Get away. We don't like your kind around here. Vincent asks a good question. He said, uh, it'd, it'd like to hear you speak a little bit on Eric Helms and John 
Tromlin's uh, recent articles on your site regarding protein intake, uh, as their respective takes on the topic seem to differ a bit. Um, yeah, do, can you just talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah, sure. Um, so, assume that people what, listening haven't read the articles, please. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I think what that's primarily getting at is um, Eric gives all of his recommendations in like grams per pound or grams per kilo for protein intake. And uh, Jorn more took the, the, the tack of um, just like a set grams per day amount, um, regardless of body size. And I think that I think the, the difference primarily comes from what research you're looking at and kind of how you weight things. So, um, Eric is absolutely well-versed in like the protein metabolism research, but as a like bodybuilding and powerlifting coach, he's more interested in like clinical outcomes. Um, and so most of the studies looking at like, you know, when people are in a deficit who retains more lean body mass or in a surplus who gains more lean body mass, most of that is like they report protein intake in uh, just grams per day. Uh, a lot of the protein metabolism research, so looking at like acute measures of muscle protein synthesis, which that's the world that Jorn is in. Uh, he's a protein metabolism researcher at like one of the best labs for that in the world. Most of that looks at, um, you know, uh, fasted or fed or post-exercise. We give people X amount of protein and, um, you know, what is the MPS response to that? And muscle protein synthesis I, response. Yes. Muscle protein synthesis. Um, and so when you look at, so Eric, I think the recommendation that he gave at the end of the article, um, and I need to look back again for like exact numbers, but I want to say it was, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1.8 to 2.3 grams per kilo or something like that. Um, and Jorn, his recommendation was 160 grams of protein per day, uh, spread throughout the day with, uh, three protein feedings with 40 grams a piece in those feedings and one, uh, 40 gram bolus before sleep. Um, so the first thing I'll say is that it, <laughs> there's really not much of a difference between those two recommendations unless someone is either really, really big or really, really small. Um, most people are going to have ugh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 65-ish to 85-ish kilos of lean body mass anyways. So if you apply like Eric's gram per, gram per kilo recommendation or Jorn's just 160 grams a day recommendation, that's going to land you in the same ballpark regardless. Um, so that would mostly just matter in terms of looking at outliers. And the other thing, and this is kind of interesting, um, I don't know. So it's kind of intuitive to think about protein needs in terms of grams per pound or grams per kilo, because, you know, protein is what our lean body mass is primarily composed of. It makes sense if you have more lean body mass, you need more protein. The thing is, however, until recently, that actually hadn't been studied. Um, it was just kind of a thing where it made intuitive sense to me and you, made intuitive sense to most of the listeners. Unsurprisingly, that made intuitive sense to most researchers looking at the question as well. 
So that's how that's how they reported it. Um, however, is the first study actually looking to see, at least in terms of muscle protein synthesis, whether there was a difference um, like for people with more or less lean body mass just came out last year. Uh, the lead researcher was McNaughton and uh, basically looking at post-workout um, protein, uh, muscle protein synthesis responses um, to people with less lean body mass. And I want to say people with like 62 kilos of lean body mass on average, so not very much lean body mass versus people with more lean body mass. And I want to say their average was like 84 kilos of lean body mass, which is relatively big. Uh, and again, like that's a big difference between groups. I, I think the between group difference, I'm not remembering exactly what it was for each group, but I think the between group difference was like 17 kilos of lean body mass, which like, that's a lot of lean body mass. Yeah. Um, and they found, uh, the same muscle protein synthesis response between the groups to the same protein feeding kind of indicating that the people who had more lean body mass, in fact, didn't need more protein to maximize the muscle protein synthesis response. And in talking to Jorn more about that, um, basically he breaks it down into like the two primary uh, different roles of protein for muscle growth. So one, you need to trigger the muscle protein synthesis response and leucine is responsible for that, the amino acid leucine. But in addition to that, you need the building blocks, the other amino acids in your bloodstream to build protein. Um, and so essentially, uh, like how, how he explains it and he's, he's actually going to add an addendum to the article in, in the next like day or two, I think, um, kind of like just making sure that this is more explicit is that basically you need enough leucine to maximally trigger muscle protein synthesis. And then if you're getting enough leucine, you're, you're also going to have enough of the building blocks of the other amino acids in your system to build a lot of protein, um, or to build a lot of muscle, I mean, lean body mass. And so, uh, and it, so it very well may be that like the quote unquote building block role of protein might be lean body mass dependent, but that you need a fair amount of protein period just to get enough leucine to trigger muscle protein synthesis. And that, uh, like that trigger function of leucine itself, just a single amino acid isn't lean body mass dependent. Um, so that, that could potentially be where that, uh, difference between Jorn and Eric's articles come from. And again, like just to kind of wrap this up, I want to reiterate, even though, uh, the recommendations are different in terms of how they're reported, just like a flat protein amount versus a grams per pound or grams per kilo amount, um, the actual number most people, like most generally normal sized people are going to settle on uh, is going to be pretty similar. And also in talking to Jorn more about his recommendation, his biggest concern isn't so much that larger people will wind up eating too little protein if they use like a grams per pound or grams per kilo approach. So if you're, you know, 150 kilos, you're going to be fine eating 300 grams of protein a day maybe you only need 160, maybe you need more than 160. Like that wasn't, people that big weren't included in the McNaughton study. Um, but you know, even if 300 grams of protein, maybe, maybe that is too much for them, but it's not going to hurt them. Like there's nothing wrong with eating too much protein versus, you know, maybe you have a female powerlifter who's 60 kilos. If the leucine function, um, 
Like if that isn't lean body mass dependent and you need the same amount of leucine period to trigger muscle protein synthesis, then either she's going to need to eat more protein than just her, uh, than would be indicated by just looking at grams per pound or grams per kilo, uh, or she would need to supplement with leucine to trigger that process enough. So he's, he's more concerned, um, like when using a grams per pound or grams per kilo approach, he's more concerned that little people will wind up not eating as much protein as they should in order to, to get enough leucine versus larger people eating too much protein and there being any sort of downside to that. Did you just call them little people? Uh, smaller people. Less, less, less voluminous people. <laughs> okay. Excellent summary, mate. And that I found that exceptionally interesting, and it's and it's highly pertinent to well the Japanese population as well because people are smaller, and so we need to be careful of the recommendations that we're making. And um, we're making some. Um, we've got the eyes of some very influential people. You know, people that mm-hmm. train at the, the athletes who will be mm-hmm. um, ready to crush the Ruskies and you Americans um, in the coming Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Um, we'll my, see, man. My spare room uh, is up for bid. Um, I need winks and smiles and hugs in order to secure it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, thank you for uh, getting those articles up um, on your website. Thank you for getting them to... Uh, take the time to write that. It's very interesting. Yeah, dude. Um, and one one thing I'll say is like, I honestly, uh, so using like normal humans, I don't know how, I don't, I don't really know how you could design a study that would be able to tease out the difference between the two. Um, like, I, I think that would be pretty challenging in and of itself. So like, let's say you had access to a group of humans that just happened to have 115 kilos of lean body mass. One, it's probably not going to be a valid study population because they're probably juiced to the gills. (laughs) They're juiced to the gills. Um, (laughs) But if you could get like a large enough, like a, a, a group of people with enough lean body mass, you could test like you know, in, in this population, is there a difference between two grams per kilo versus just 160 grams of protein? If there wasn't a difference between those two things in that population, that would, that would tend to support just like a set gram number versus like a grams per kilo or grams per pound number. Um, and the opposite would be, and this would probably be more feasible, um, getting say like smaller females who might only have 40, 50 kilos of lean body mass and testing maybe two grams per kilo for them, uh, which would end up not being all that much protein, maybe 80, 90, a hundred grams versus 160. So if you could get four groups in your study, two of very small females, one gram per pound, one, just 160 grams and one of very, very large, incredible amount of lean body mass people. Um, you could kind of tease it out that way. I just, would not want to be the person attempting to do the recruiting for that study. And also like validity of that would be pretty terrible in the first place. Cause you're not just going to be comparing people with different amounts of lean body mass. You're probably also going to be comparing untrained people to very highly trained people. You're probably also going to be comparing women to men. 
And you're probably also going to be comparing like drug free people to people who are absolutely juiced to the gills. Like the groups would have to be pretty small just because there wouldn't be that many people who would meet those criteria. And so then like you'd need to get just insane adherence from the people who you did recruit, which that's another hurdle itself. So I don't, I honestly don't know what like a, a study designed to get a solid answer to that question would be. Okay. Um, if we can forget the big people for a second, would the study still work? Okay. Let's say 50, 50 kilo weight, Japanese powerlifters or weightlifters, 90 versus 160 grams of protein. Let's say we could convince them to actually do that. Um, so to get, to get like good confirmation of that whole idea, mm. Uh, I, I'd want to see that it worked for people above and below, um, like kind of the normal size range. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that would definitely give it like partial support. Mm. Okay. Cause that's something that could be possible here. Yeah. Like you aren't going to find any 115 kilogram lane problem. That's a mass monsters here. Um, I mean, even like Japan's best bench presser at Buddy Shinto, I mean, uh, he, what is he? I think he weighs in at like 115. So, and he like puts up 230 kilogram on his bench. I think that was a, a record, a Japanese record. That was lap recent. Was, was that raw? I'm not sure. He was wearing a black t-shirt and I didn't look closely enough. You guys have or at least had and i'm blanking on his name uh but a really really good uh single ply equipped lifter uh super heavy he's a big old dude but yeah i i know i know that japan also has some really really insane lightweight bench pressers as well um their technique is insane have have you seen what they do with their thumbs go on Okay, so this is this is really neat. The Japanese lightweight benchers. So there's a rule in the IPF, well, all powerlifting federations, that the like grip ring, the 81 centimeter ring, has to be completely covered by a finger. Um, and most people just assume that means your your pointer finger. Um, so they put their pointer finger on the rings, and that's maximum grip width. What the Japanese do is they they rotate their wrists and stick their thumb out. So like this part of their thumb is covering the ring. So they can get their grip like an inch and a half wider. And if, you know, for the guys in the 66 kilo class, like those are little dudes in the first place. So like that, that cuts like a third of their range of motion off because their range of motion was like six inches to begin with. They're technical masters of the bench press. I would say top to bottom technique wise, Japan has period the best benchers in the world, but definitely as well, the most proficient benchers in the world. I think I met a guy, uh, tell me if these numbers are ridiculous, but I think he said he he was around 60 kilos, so around 130 pounds. Mm-hmm. He might have competed a little bit lighter, but I think he said he threw up 170, 370, is that 370 pounds? Yeah, 374. Am I lying here? Uh, that sounds reasonable. I think... Uh I think Eddie Berglund just took the world record in that class, and that I think that's around what he hit. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that yeah. that uh, <laughs> certainly seems plausible. Monster. <laughs> that's that's ridiculous, man. Monster. All right. 
James Michael O'Brien <laughs> asks, thoughts on the application and misapplication of science in pushing agendas, such as characterization of movements as inherently dangerous and the dismissal of the idea that GMO foods are equal to their non-GMO counterparts by scientists literally everywhere. Put simply, his squat stance is so wide he will get nebola and his consumption of vegetables is lethal. Discuss. Well, so one, I'm not concerned about GMO vegetables because I don't eat vegetables. Um, <laughs> vegetables are a government conspiracy to get us to uh, clean up the overgrowth of noxious crops across our nation. Completely kidding. Uh, so I eat, I eat way too many Brussels sprouts, and they do a similar thing to my bowels that blueberries do but I love them so much, so I can't stop. Um, okay. Uh, misapplication of science to push agendas. Um, <laughs> roasted Brussels sprouts are fucking delicious. <laughs> Dude, they're so good. They, they are the most underrated food on the planet. I'm making that statement, and I'm standing by it. Okay. Roasted Brussels sprouts are fantastic. Um, okay, so misapplication of science to push agendas. So I think... I think like the first thing to recognize, like we were talking about, uh, I think before we started recording, maybe at the beginning of the recording, is that like I, I sometimes I have a hard time uh, starting with the assumption that people are misapplying science to push agendas. Um, I. Th definitely think they are misapplying science and I definitely think they're pushing agendas, but I don't know that kind of the, I don't, I don't know that there's like kind of an agency in the middle where they're doing it, uh, like intentionally to be like to do anything subversive, uh, and to like mess anything up as it were. Um, like, you know, for example, the people like the, the people who think that GMOs are going to kill us all. Um, they may like legitimately believe that and have just not read the mountain of science that says otherwise. It's like, yeah, they're pushing an agenda and yeah, they're misapplying science, but they very well may think they're doing the right thing and just not be aware of how wrong they are. Um, and so I think, I think the first thing, the first, the first place to start this discussion is how, you treat information versus how you treat people. Um, and I have no problem just savagely attacking bad ideas, but I think a lot of times people kind of dig themselves into a hole and don't do their side or their agenda any favors when they treat people they disagree with poorly people are just more likely to change their minds if you treat them and the ideas they espouse with respect. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to agree with what they say. That doesn't mean that it can't be a scenario where you're a hundred percent right and they're a hundred percent wrong and their ideas have no merit and you don't have to meet them in the middle. Like you don't have to compromise, but you still need to treat generally their ideas and at least them with respect if you want to change their mind and you want to move the conversation, I'm much less interested in why people misapply science uh, to push agendas and much more interested in how can I, and how can we 
uh, engage with those people to get them to change their minds and to move them in the right direction. And um, generally, the first step is, again, just being friendly, like treating them like human beings and not like an adversary on the other side of a battlefield. Next thing is just saying like, you know, that's that's an interesting idea. I'm open to it. Why do you believe it? Um, and then like, you know, letting them explain it. Uh, I think, I think Dan Dennett had a, like a four step process for this. And one of the steps was, um, like show them that you understand and respect their opinion by after they explain to you what they believe, uh, try to restate it in a way that makes them say like, Oh, I wish I could have explained it like that myself. Um, because then, then that, that gets rid of the defense mechanism. They could fall back on like, Oh, this person's just disagreeing with me because they don't understand. Um, like full show that you like fully and respectfully understand their starting position. Um, and then after that, just an honest conversation, like after they explain to you what they believe and why they believe it, start chipping away at things they're not as emotionally attached to. So take, uh, I don't know, like take GMOs or something like that. They may have a very strong emotional reaction to like GMOs are causing cancer and killing everyone, blah, blah, blah. If you just go after that and be like, no, you're full of shit. GMOs are fine. Like not using golden rice is killing millions of people in Southeast Asia every year because of vitamin A deficiencies, which is true. Uh, that's going to cause like a strong defensive response from them. And you're not going to get anywhere with them. That's not how you change hearts and minds. Uh, but you know, once they explain their position and why they believe it, then, uh, start chipping away at things that they don't hold as strong of an emotional attachment to. So, you know, let's say they start with, uh, what is it like Monsanto made bombs or some shit like that. I don't I, like that's, that's like a, a area that I don't deal with at all. I'm just trying to use that as the example because that was the example in the comment. But I think I think that's one of the things like, oh, Monsanto made bombs and they're like a weapons manufacturer and they're weaponizing our food or some shit like that. You know, uh, you could start with like a, you know, that like the Monsanto Corporation that is currently making genetically modified foods is not that same Monsanto Corporation. They split the weapon subsidiary was bought by, I believe, DuPont. Um, anyway, so you can you can just start taking uh that process of like things that they're not as emotionally attached to things that they're not going to be as defensive about, uh, if you disagree with and try to present counter evidence against like start chipping away at things like that. And then there's probably not going to be like one grand epiphany moment where they're like, Oh, this thing I used to believe very strongly. I now think is full of shit. Um, but at the very least, that's a way to start sowing seeds of doubt when they realize like, you know, I had, I have this belief and I have these finite number of reasons why I hold this belief. Like they're the supporting factors. If you can kind of chip away at three quarters of them, they're going to then from that point be dealing with enough cognitive dissonance that they'll slowly realize like, oh, wait, I have this belief that I thought was really well supported by all of these things. And now I'm not so sure about because the couple of reasons I have left to support it maybe aren't that strong of reasons and maybe this isn't something I should believe anymore. Um, 
like thinking back to big things that I've changed my mind on in the past, that's, that's kind of the process it took for me. So like some of that stuff is personal, so I'm not going to get into it, but yeah, like I, I was a very different person with a fair amount of very different beliefs, maybe five to eight years ago. And all of the things I can think of where I've personally changed my mind, it was where like I had a friend who had, who held the opposite beliefs. Um, We could have good conversations about things and they slowly made me realize like, you know, this thing that I thought I had really good reasons for believing right now, I still believe it, but I recognize I don't have great reasons to believe it anymore. And then just slowly so the first the first process after that is if this thing is like currently a big part of someone's life and a big part of someone's personality, when they realize that they can't believe it quite as strongly anymore, even if they do still believe it, that's going to start becoming a more peripheral part of who they are and their personality. And then after that point, that's going to be a much less emotionally charged belief and emotionally charged topic for them. And eventually they can sort of just let it go. Um, it doesn't work a hundred percent of the time and it doesn't work with all people. Some people are just so invested in a particular topic. They can never let it go. And I think a lot of people want to change minds, but they also want to have the satisfaction of, of someone saying like, you change my mind, you win this argument. Rah, like that shit doesn't happen in the real world. Like that happens 0% of the time. Uh, so like, if you take an effective approach at changing people's hearts and minds about misapplying science, you're, you're probably yourself not going to get like a big emotional payoff from it. But if you want to do it correctly and effectively, um, that's, that's the process that generally works best. That was great. Thanks dude. Um, so you're selling a mind, manipulation mastery 101.com when does that course open <laughs> no like it's it's not that like the <laughs> only the only way like the only time it works is when you're actually right like if you start trying to chip away at their supporting beliefs and like you realize oh shit like all of these are correct maybe I'm the one that's wrong like that's actually a good process as well because <laughs> then you realize yourself like oh maybe I have some shit I need to discard um, yeah, it's it, like, it's not manipulation. It's just getting people to drop their defenses enough that you can actually have an honest conversation about something instead of two emotionally charged people just butting heads and just ending up pissed off and no one changing their mind. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm going to end on that fairly deep note, especially pertinent in the times we live. I'm sure you will agree. We get stuck into some geekier topics in the next part of the interview. So please click the subscribe button now if you haven't already to get that straight to your phone. And two things that would help the show. If you could think of a friend that may find this episode useful, please message them the link. And if you could leave a review for us in iTunes, that'll help bump us up the rankings. Until next time.